Good morning. Turn to Acts chapter 2. You should be familiar with this. If you've been here for the past four years, you can probably doze off and get away with it because we're going back to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. I want to remind you, I want to remind you of that early church that we want to pattern ourselves after. And the reason we keep coming back to this is is because we need to see this. We need to see it in Scripture. We need to understand this. We need to emulate this as a church. And listen, the temptation for some of you, because of what you heard last week, is is going to be hit the pause button. That's going to be your temptation. Well, let's just hit the pause button and see what happens. There is no pause button in the kingdom of God, okay? So let's just get that out of our mindset. There is no holding patterns where you just circle the the runway waiting on air traffic control to give you the next report. No, there's no holding pattern. There's no pause button in the church. Nothing here hinges on me. Nothing here hinges on any one of us. The Word of God is still the Word of God. And it's true. The church is still the church. And it will stand and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the head of the church is still Jesus Christ. And he will not be removed from his throne regardless of who he redeploys and where. The kingdom of God keeps advancing because the king of that kingdom is still on his throne. So let's get the pause button out of our head. Let's get the holding pattern out of our head. And let's see what the scriptures say we're to be. And let's press harder. Let's press harder into these seven characteristics that we have found in the early church. This is our target. This is our target. Now when you walk out these doors, if you hang a right or you hang a left... On that wall, you should see a big banner that you've already tuned out. You pass by it. You don't notice it anymore, but it's still there. Trust me. We've got a different color one. We ought to just, we may swap them out so that maybe it'll catch your attention. But when you walk by that banner, I don't want you to see a banner. I don't want you to see a graphic. I don't want you to see a design. What I want you to envision and what I want you to see is a target. I want you to see a big target on the wall. And kids, that doesn't mean you should go by and throw things at it. No. I want you to envision a target on the wall, and that target target has on it seven characteristics. You'll see that early church was characterized by being Scripture-saturated. They were characterized by fellowship together. They were characterized by praying together. They were characterized by miracles. They were characterized by ministering to the body. They were characterized by worshiping God and glorifying God together. And they were characterized by outreach. And I want you, as you see that target, and you see those seven different qualities and descriptions and scriptures listed on that target, I want you to notice what's in the center of that target. What is the bullseye? And the bullseye is the outreach. The bullseye is the evangelism, the disciple-making, the missions. We need to know where to aim if we're going to hit the target. And if you've done any shooting, any hunting, you know that if you want to hit the target, you don't just aim at the target, right? 
You aim at the bullseye of the target. What's the saying? Aim small, miss small. You aim at something small on the target to ensure that you hit the target. So where do we aim? We aim at the bullseye. What is the bullseye? It is missions, disciple-making, and evangelism. And Jesus made this abundantly clear for us. As if you've not heard this already, I'll give them to you again. Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Mark chapter 16, 15. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So he tells us at the end of Matthew. He tells us at the end of Mark. Then we get to Luke's gospel. He said to them, thus it is written, thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem, but it goes to all the nations. And then in John chapter 20 and verse 21, Jesus said to them, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And just in case we don't read to the end of books, we don't finish them, we just read the first part and we move on to the next one. He put it at the very beginning of the book of Acts where he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very uttermost parts of the earth and even this early church didn't fully get this because we're going to see in Acts chapter 2 in just a moment that they are seeing people come to faith day by day the church in Jerusalem is growing by the thousands but they're not getting out of their comfort zones they're not getting out of their hometowns they're not getting out and doing what Jesus has commanded them to do in Matthew Mark Luke John and Acts so in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1 says that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Jesus said, I told you to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and they had to be Baptists because this is what they said. Well, we still got a lot of people that need the gospel in Jerusalem. I don't know why we need to go to Judea and Samaria because, I mean, there's a lot of people right here that need the gospel. Absolutely. But Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So it doesn't matter what your argument is. It doesn't matter what your logic is. It's what Jesus said. And when Jesus saw them getting Baptist there in Jerusalem, he sent some persecution to push them out. You know that when Jesus tells his disciples, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest, you know the word send out there in the Greek language? It's the word ekbalo. And that's not your waiter at the Mexican restaurant after church today. Ekbalo is a Greek word that means fling out, squeeze out, push out. So Jesus is actually saying, pray that God would take the church like a tube of toothpaste and squeeze it. And that we'll be squeezed right out of here. He took the church in Acts and he squeezed them. And he scattered them through Judea. He scattered them into Samaria. And we'll see in Acts chapter 13, before we're done, that they move beyond Samaria on to the ends of the earth. This is the bullseye. And, and listen, 
If this is not the goal, we're not a church. Because Jesus made the goal plain. He made the goal clear. This is not what we're about. We're not the church. This is the bullseye, whether you like it, whether you don't like it, whether you agree with it, whether you don't agree with it. Jesus said it. This is the goal. This is where we need to aim. And if we get this right, if we set our crosshairs on the bullseye, if we make this our priority, then the, all the other characteristics on the target are going to get hit. Let's consider them again. Number one, maturing in the Word. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Listen to how this early church is described. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching is what became the New Testament. The apostles were teaching what they had learned from the Old Testament, what they had learned from Jesus And what they saw through the lens of Jesus in the Old Testament, they were applying it to the lives of those Jews in Jerusalem. They were applying it to the lives of the people in those early churches. They were actually giving them the New Testament before the New Testament was even a thing. And the the early church there is devoting themselves to what the apostles are teaching them. Continually devoting themselves. Now, there's going to be an epistle written... 20 years from now, that the church in the 21st century continually devoted itself to social media. But thank God, they didn't have social media. And I'm going to preach a sermon on this, because somebody said, what are you going to preach on? Well, next Sunday we're going to begin Jonah. Okay? We're going to spend four Sundays in Jonah. We're not going to talk about a great big fish. We're going to talk about a great big God. Okay? In Jonah. So we're going to spend four weeks in Jonah. And then when we get to October, I can't resist five Sundays in October without unfolding the five solas of the Reformation. But there's a couple of Sundays in there, and somebody said, what are you going to preach on? It's going to say, everything I want to say. So brace yourself. Might not want to live stream those. But I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to camp out on social media and phones, iPhones. You know why? They, and they're not called we phones because ain't nobody weeing together on them. It's just I. And I'm going to tell you, it's the greatest tool of the devil because you know what happens I'm giving you a preview you know what happens you come into the church or you sit down across the table and you're in a conversation that brings a tinge of conviction it brings a tinge of discomfort you know what we do say I'm lying so now when people used to go home with the Word on their heart and used to feel conviction and used to have to wrestle with that and think about God and think about eternity and think about their soul, now they just open it up and they get lost in their world of scrolling about people who don't give a rip about them and don't care that they're scrolling. And we just have numbed ourselves. We continually devote ourselves to screens and to social media, and to YouTube. We don't read our Bible. I mean, the the students are having to throw out the CBR Journal Sunday School and actually go back to Sunday School material because every Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, they're asked, who read their CBR Journal? Nobody. But I guarantee you, if the teacher said, how many of you have been on YouTube this week? 
How many of you TikToked? How many of you were on Instagram? But you didn't read the Bible. And you're a Christian. This is all supposed to come later. Well, you not see a problem here? And we adults go, that's right, amen. And kids, tell the truth. Mom and daddy are sitting in the corner staring at their screen too, aren't they? And grandpa and grandma will do it too. I've read some of your Mad Gab texts. You know the game Mad Gab? You get a text from somebody over 65 or 70, and it's like Mad Gab. You've got to read it. There's no punctuation, no capital letters. Words are run together. Read it out loud. Read it to the person next to you. We all have these things that are such a blessing, but such a curse. And we continually devote ourselves to them, and this begins to grow dust. Somebody said if everybody in the world, and if everybody in the West would open their Bibles up at the same time, we'd die of a dust storm. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And listen, the focus did not change because several decades later, Paul tells the same church, the, the church, the early church leaders to do the exact same thing. 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 16, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. You know how you're going to progress? Do you know how your progress is going to be evident to all? Read the Word. Get exhortation from the Word. Get teaching from the Word. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. Continually devote yourself to these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourselves and for those who hear you. Timothy, go to the Scriptures. Feed your soul. Feed the soul of the flock among you. I hope if there's one thing that's characterized me over four years here, and I hope the staff can testify to this as they're in the office every day, is that I spend time feeding my soul in an effort to feed your soul, not good stories or clever gimmicks or jokes. All of my jokes are completely unplanned. They just come out as dry humor. But that I feed myself and I feed you the Scriptures. There's nothing else I can give you that's worth anything. Scriptures are what will change your life. The Scriptures are what brings salvation. So let's read it, let's exhort it, let's teach it, let's devote ourselves to it in every way. And listen, nothing will drive you to this Word any more than getting out and getting involved in evangelism, disciple-making, and missions. Because then you're going to run into those very simple questions that you've already leapfrogged over years and years ago, and you're going to go, wait a minute. Let's go to the Scriptures. Maturing in the Word. Number two, meaningful fellowship. Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Down in verse 46, we read that they were breaking bread from house to house. The Scriptures are not the only thing they devoted themselves to. They devoted themselves to fellowship to each other. Here is another danger that we have come to in this COVID-19 world we live in. It's where people think they're going to church online. 
Now, ain't this morning if they're trying to watch it on Facebook because I don't think it's working. But people think they're going to church online. You don't go to church online. You might listen to a sermon online. That's not going to church. Part of church is fellowship. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to each other. Think about this. This early church, these people were likely rejected by their friends. They were likely rejected by their family members. They were in great need of support from their newfound family. And Jesus warns them of this. Listen in Luke chapter 12, verses 51 to 53. You know, we're never going to get away from Luke, right? He says, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Why? Because of Jesus. He didn't come to bring peace, but he came to bring a sword. And he cuts right down the middle... And he stirs up families when one person comes to faith and the rest of them don't like it. And then what happens to that one person? They get rejected. They don't have a place to eat Christmas dinner or Easter lunch or Thanksgiving meals. They've been ostracized. So then Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verses 29 to 31, I say, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Listen, Jesus said, you're going to lose mothers, you're going to lose fathers, you're going to lose brothers, you're going to lose sisters, you may even lose children because you are committed to me. You're going to face persecution. But listen, you're going to get a hundred times as many mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and children. Because now you are entering into a family that will last for eternity. I think that's a missing link that's preached to Muslims. We argue with Muslims over Jesus being the Son of God. We argue with Muslims over Jesus dying. We argue over Muslims with Muslims over the Trinity. We argue with Muslims over all these things. And the one thing that's percolating in the back of their mind is that if I become a Christian, I lose everything. We ought to be preaching to them, you will gain a family. And we ought to emulate that in our churches. That we're a family. The words one another are used roughly 151 times in the Bible. And there's a reason for that. We don't need to take for granted the fellowship of the believers. And listen, listen carefully. Meaningful fellowship is fueled by and fuels missions. Missions, evangelism, and disciple-making are the primary reasons we fellowship. It's not just, oh, I had a good time watching the game with my buddies. Nobody was cussing, nobody was drinking, nobody was fussing. We were just watching the game, having good fellowship. That's not the purpose of fellowship. The purpose of fellowship is to mobilize us for missions, evangelism, and disciple-making. You don't believe me? Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9. Recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. So that, 
They gave us the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Do you know how hard it'll be to go if you don't have a fellowship? You know how easy it'll be to go with a fellowship? Paul and Barnabas went and they got the right hand of fellowship. We are your church. We are your brothers in the Lord. And we're going to give you the right hand of fellowship so that you can go do what God has called you to do. Number three, making supplication. Verse 42, again, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Acts chapter 2, church was devoting themselves to prayer, and that focus was still there decades later. Again, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells his son in the faith, Timothy, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And down in verse number 8, Therefore... I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Let prayer permeate every part of the church, which means we as individuals need to be people of prayer. And nothing will motivate prayer like missions, disciple-making, and evangelism. I bet you that if you're the mother and the father of a missionary, in a place where that's not safe or legal or smiled upon, I bet you probably pray a bit harder for missionaries and that particular missionary now than you did before that son or daughter was a missionary. Wouldn't you think? You know why? Because you got some flesh and blood on the line, right? you got someone you love on the line. That motivates prayer, doesn't it? It motivates prayer for the mission, motivates prayer for evangelism and disciple-making. Do you see how aiming at missions, disciple-making, evangelism, moves you to prayer? Number four, miracles performed. Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. I don't think I need to give a footnote here to tell you that we're not going to have Benny Ann come in in a sequined suit and do a fancy service, healing service up here. That's not what we're talking about. If you're, if you're guests with us here, you, you know that now. You know the greatest miracle? The greatest miracle of all, and let's just be honest, the greatest miracle of all is not God parting the Red Sea. Children of Israel walking across on dry land. The greatest miracle is not sending fire down and consuming the sacrifice of Elijah as he went up against the prophets of Baal. The greatest miracle is not even Jesus walking on the water. It's not the disciples casting out demons. It's not blind people being given their sight, deaf people being given their hearing, mute people being able to talk, paralyzed people being able to walk. The greatest miracle is that God would take a dead, sinful wretch like me and like you and give us a heart of flesh. And put His Spirit in us. 
and breathe new life into us and take us from lost to saved, from darkness to light, from the power of Satan, the power of God. That's the greatest miracle. Probably mess all mess this totally up. But Leonard Ravenhill said something like this. The greatest miracle that God has ever done is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world and make that man holy. And then put that holy man back in an unholy world and keep him holy. That's the greatest miracle is that God would save a wretch like us and we lose sight of that because we think we're squeaky clean Baptists. We need to see the miracle of salvation. And sometimes we need to be the miracle. We may see a need for food or drink or clothing or fill in the blank. And a lot of us, here's the first thing we do, and we see a need or we see a gap or we see a, a place that, that needs some attention. As we pick up the phone, we call the church and see what they're going to do about it. Let's form a program, right? Let's put together a program. We've got to come to understand that we as individuals are the church. And when we as individuals see a need, we can and we should take responsibility for that need. Contact your discipleship group. Contact your Sunday school. Contact your circle of friends. Get a plan together. If we need to come alongside and help, we'll be glad to do that. But be the miracle. Miracles happen when we are aiming at the target of evangelism, disciple-making. Missions. Number five, ministry to the body, verses 44 to 46. All who, those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. I don't know what on earth politicians do, but they don't study the Bible. Because I've heard some of them actually reference this for socialistic pro policies. Well, you know, we want to be like that early church, and we want to just spread the wealth. There's a slight difference in Uncle Sam stealing some money from my paycheck to give it to somebody else, or dropping stimulus money in my account without my permission, and the early church being moved by the Holy Spirit to see a need and have compassion and voluntarily say, I'm going to sell what I have and I'm going to give to meet that need. There's a vast difference in Christianity and socialism. Socialism is enforced by a government who wants to steal in order to give to somebody else who may or may not deserve it. Christianity is the body of Christ seeing needs and sacrificially giving to meet those needs. Vastly different. Caring for the brethren is critical in the Scriptures. Again, there's over 150 one another verses. And the early church very practically loved one another. If you turn to Acts chapter 4, just a couple of pages over, verses 32 to 35, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Can you imagine that today? It's like nobody claims anything is wrong. I saw a car out there with the top down. I'm, I'm going to get in to go home on like, What's yours is mine. What's mine is yours. And apparently everything was everybody's. 
And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to any as each one had any need. They were just liquidating they were liquidating because they would see a need. They would see someone hurting. They would see someone hungry. They would see someone lacking clothing. And they would liquidate what they had and they would disperse it to whoever needed it. Why? Because they were eternity-minded and they thought Jesus was coming back really, really soon. What are we going to do with all this junk? And then, you know, as you read on in the New Testament, do you know who is being referred to most of the times when the Bible talks about the poor, the church in Jerusalem. Paul's getting a collection for the poor. And where does he take it? The church in Jerusalem. They done liquidated everything. And now the church is helping the church. Again, you can't do this watching online at home. You'll be aware of one another's needs as you're together. But listen, you'll also be aware of one another's needs as you go. Again, aim at that bullseye. And what happens when you are in the mission together, when you're evangelizing together, when you're making disciples together, when you're going together, when you're praying together, sending together, giving together, when you're accomplishing that mission together, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be aware of each other's needs. We've got this idea of ministry, and here's what some of your mindset is. Well, ministry is... is all of us Christians who love each other, not the ones we don't love, but the Christians we love, you know, we hold hands and we just care for one another. And we've just got this circle of Christians holding hands, caring for one another. Let's try it this way. How about instead of holding hands in a circle, looking at each other to care for each other, we turn around, we can still hold hands in a circle and look out. Look outward to the nations. Look outward to the lost. We can still hold on to each other. We can still hold hands. We can still communicate with each other. We can still care for each other. We don't have to be looking inward to do it. Aim at outreach, missions, disciple making, and evangelism, and you will grow in your love. You'll grow in your care for one another. And as we do this, listen, we will be a testimony to a lost and watching world that will attract them and make them want to come get in the circle. Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Number six, magnifying God. Verse 47 says, Praising God and having favor with all the people. We do a little catechism, very inconsistently, but we do a little catechism with our kids, and I think Michael's going to make it available for you, and it goes like this. The first question is, who made you? And they say, God. And you say, what else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? Anybody know that answer? What is it? For his own glory. Why did God make you in all things? For His own glory. This is fundamental Christianity 101. God made us and saved us for His own glory. And He gets praise 
when His glory is declared to those who do not know Him and they become worshipers too. Listen, the primary goal of missions is not go out and love people. I'm just going to go out and love on some people. That ain't missions. Yeah, you need to love on people. The, the primary goal of missions is to make worshipers who glorify God because God's not getting glory from the people who aren't worshiping Him. Psalm 96 and verse 3, tell of His glory among the nations, His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. Isaiah 12 and verse 4, in that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, make known His deeds among the peoples. Make them remember that His name is exalted. The goal of missions is to go out and make worshipers. John Piper said, worship is the goal and the fuel of missions. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions is our way of saying the joy of knowing Christ is not a private or tribal or national or ethnic privilege. It's for all, and that's why we go, because we have tasted the joy of worshiping Jesus, and we want all the families of the earth included. Not just corporate worship, but daily glorifying God through our words, through our actions, through our spending habits, and ultimately as we make worshipers for Him through evangelism, disciple-making, and missions. Lastly, number seven. Kind of lastly, I got a conclusion too, so don't pack up yet. Missions, disciple making, and evangelism. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is our bullseye. Missions, disciple making, and evangelism. If we aim at this bullseye, listen, if we aim at this bullseye, guess what's going to happen? We are going to fall short. Surprised? If we aim at this bullseye, we're going to fall short. We're going to get to heaven. Listen, we're going to get to heaven and we're going to say, I wish to goodness I'd have spent more time and energy on the mission than I did filling my bank account. I wish to goodness I would have given more to the mission instead of putting more in my 401k. I wish to goodness I could, I could go back and invest more time, more money, more energy, more prayers, more of my life, and the one thing that matters is the mission. We can aim at this bullseye all day long. We're all going to fall short because we're going to get to heaven and we're going to wish we had done more. But if we aim at the bullseye, we're going to at least hit the target. Amen? So let's be faithful to strive to go should Lord, the Lord let us. Let us be faithful to send if he won't let us go. And how do we send? Praying and or giving. That's what the early church did. In Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, look at what happens. There were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. Prophets and teachers are in this church. Who are they? Barnabas, and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now you pull up their website, AntiochBaptist.com, and you look on their staff page, and on their staff page, you've got Barnabas. I've heard of that guy. Son of encouragement. They've got Simeon, who was called Niger. I don't know him. Look at his picture. We've got Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean. He seems important. 
Looks like Herod somewhere on his resume. And we've got Saul. And they're ministering to the Lord and they're fasting in verse 2. And the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And some folks said, Ho, 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 wait just a minute. What about Manan? Could you take Manan? Because Saul's pretty, I mean, he's an apostle. You really do without Manan more than Saul. What about old Lucius? Could you just take Lucius? It would make a lot more sense. It would make a lot more sense if you would take Lucius of Cyrene. But don't take Barnabas. Don't take Saul. So what did they do? They fasted and prayed some more. They fasted and prayed. And they laid their hands on them. And they sent them away. I bet there was some sorrow. I bet there was some joy. And isn't that the Christian life? A life mingled with sorrow and joy. That's why Paul said, always sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You look at your kid, and as a Christian, you feel great joy and love for that child, don't you? And at the same time, the joy and love is mingled with sorrow because they won't quit growing. It's joy and sorrow. It's love and sorrow. This early church said, we're going to take the mission seriously and we're going to send Saul. We're going to send Barnabas. We are going to hold the ropes and we're going to pray and we're going to hold the ropes and we're going to give support. And you know what Saul and Barnabas are going to do when they make their missionary journey? They're going to come back here. They're not going to cut us off. Well, just send your check. Now they're going to come back. And they're going to say, here's what the Lord's done. Why? Because it wasn't a business deal. It wasn't a business relationship. It was a family. It was a fellowship. And they aimed at the mission. They aimed at evangelism. They aimed at disciple making. And they hit the target. So my challenge to you this morning as we take a break between Luke before we get into Jonah next week is not to be tempted to hit the pause button. Don't be tempted to hit autopilot and let's go in a circle and circle the airport in a holding pattern indefinitely. No, let's press forward with the work that Christ has called us to do. Let's be faithful to fulfill the role that Christ has given us in the kingdom. And some of your roles is going to be to get off your pocketbook. Some of your roles is going to be to get on your knees. Some of your roles is going to be to turn loose and to get out of here where God's been stirring you to go. Some of you, you're going to love this one. It's going to be to just hush and wait. But be faithful to do what Christ has given you to do. And let's all hit on all eight cylinders. And if we're all hitting on all eight cylinders, there's no telling what we can do. Go back to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. This is my conclusion. You probably recognize this story. In Genesis chapter 11, 
Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. This is Genesis 11. Now verse 2, it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city. Let us build for ourselves a city. We're going to learn about Nineveh, that in the Hebrew language, Nineveh, the great city, is they are a great city for me. That's what God says. The city was his. Wicked and pagan and ungodly as they were, it was his. Well, we got some people here who want to build a city for themselves. And not only a city for themselves, but a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. You see, this is a little bit of, they got a little bit of an eye infection here. We want to build ourselves a city. We want to build a big, tall tower so we can make for ourselves a name. The Lord came down to see the city in verse 5 and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they're one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do. And now, listen, nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come now, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. They stopped building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. What did, you, what did God say? Nothing is going to be impossible for these people. You know what unity is? Unity is not built on preferences. We get preferences all the time. I like this, I don't like that, so-and-so likes this, so-and-so doesn't like that, we like this, they don't like that. Uh, you want to talk about a schizophrenic situation. You try to please everybody's preferences and opinions, it ain't going to work. That's not going to create unity, that's going to create disunity and division. Unity is not built on, I like this, I like that, I want this, I want that, I like cushion pews, I'd rather have chairs. Unity is built on vision. Unity is built on purpose. Unity is built on goals. If we all will speak the same language with the same goals and give ourselves to our particular roles with God, nothing will be impossible. If we'll all just set our scopes on the bullseye, and we will do our part in squeezing the trigger on the bullseye, whether it's going, whether it's praying, whether it's giving, whether it's serving alongside, whatever it is God's calling you to do and has equipped you to do and has given you to do, if we'll all just focus on the same goal with God, nothing will be impossible. And I'm going to tell you something. Some of you are sitting there right now and you don't even understand the language. I see. Okay. Missions, evangelism, disciple making. How long before he's gone? And you know why you don't understand the language? 
There's only one reason you wouldn't understand the language. Because your heart hasn't been transformed. Your eyes have not been opened. Your ears have not been opened. And the Spirit of God is not testifying in your heart His passion and His mission. So if you're, if you're that person who just doesn't understand the language, there's only one prescription that I can give you. And it is to repent of your sin and to look to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. He came, He lived the life God requires of you. He died the death your sin deserves. He was buried in a tomb, rose on the third day so that this morning if you'll repent of your sin and you'll put your faith and your trust in Him, He can remove your heart of stone, replace it with a heart of flesh. He can put His Spirit within you. And when He does, when He puts His Spirit within you, you will feel what He feels. You will love what He loves. You will long for what He longs. You will desire for what He desires. And what He desires is the nations. What He desires are souls. So would you repent? Would you believe? And if you have repented and you have believed and you do speak the language, let's aim for the bullseye. Don't hit that pause button. Don't go into a holding pattern. Press harder. Press harder into what God has commanded us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for your grace towards us, your mercy with us, Lord. We, we pray that you would help us every time we approach Acts chapter 2 to be molded and moved a little more to reflect that early church. Help us to saturate ourselves in the Scriptures. Help us to long for meaningful fellowship. Help us long to make supplication to you alone and in our D groups and in our Sunday school classes and as a church. Help us to long to see you work miracles. Help us to long to minister to one another as we seek to advance your kingdom. Help us to magnify your name by making disciples from here to the ends of the earth. Help us to be about your mission, Lord. Help us to press hard into these things. And if there's one here who doesn't know you, I pray that you would stir them now, grant them repentance, grant them faith now, change their life. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.